0: Please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. We're staying in Matthew but moving ahead quite a bit for obvious reasons on this Palm Sunday. Matthew 21 is the account of what we call the triumphal entry. We'll be looking at that today. I'll give you whatever voice I have. I'm thinking it will hold out, but full volume is not there, so you're going to have to accept about two-thirds volume. Maybe you say that's good. Uh, it's interesting this week, or actually a couple weeks ago, when I was considering what we would look at for Palm Sunday and Easter, I'm sure there are ministers who preach on the triumphal entry every Palm Sunday. I do not. I think you know that. Uh, there are so many wonderful, powerful texts around the cross and the passion of Christ that have drawn my interest over the years That I found to my own surprise, I did not even realize this, that in 13 Easters here, I had not preached on the triumphal entry. So I think I better make up for that and uh, look at this important subject with you on this Lord's Day. Listen to God's Word. Matthew 21, I'll read the first 17 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there, He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna, son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what those children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is the word of God. It is said that when Queen Victoria came to the throne of England in the year 1838, she was only a young girl. She wore a large gold crown that was encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires, clustered around a central diamond of 309 carats in measurement. Witnesses said this crown looked so heavy that it seemed like her slender young neck could barely support it. And she held in her right hand as her badge of office a scepter that was capped at its top by a larger diamond cut from the Star of Africa, which weighed 516 carats. Amazing wealth and grandeur on display. The rare king or queen that is left now in the world of 2007 has rather little governmental power in most cases. They are figureheads that symbolize a national heritage. And often the very biggest event, the grandest thing that a monarch gets to participate in for an entire long reign that might be decades in length is the coronation ceremony, the grand splash when they come into office and are crowned. As you know, these things can cost millions of dollars in today's uh, economy. We think of what the next coronation will be like in England someday when Queen Elizabeth either dies or perhaps passes on her throne. The monarch is dressed in robes that are national relics, rides in a shining chariot overlaid with gold leaf pulled by matched prancing horses heads of state dignitaries aristocrats all crowd in to get the choice tickets and the seats of honor and everything is done at a coronation to highlight the supposed dignity and majesty and prestige of a human monarch who occupies a national throne but really is nothing but an empty figurehead. Matthew 21 portrays the most significant coronation the world has ever seen. The crown was not brought out until later in the week. And when it was, it was a crown, as you know, unlike the one Victoria wore. This coronation is the most significant that the world has seen but in marked contrast to every other one ever seen. I hope you would agree that the most important life ever lived was the life of Jesus. And the most important part of that life was the final week of it. All four of the Gospels devote a huge percentage of their material to that last week. In John, it is 50%. Of the whole gospel in Matthew closer to 25%. Surely this time opened by this event that we've read about today is of vast importance. And it all begins with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was an open recognition on the part of Jesus that he was king over God's covenant people. The narrative here shows him accepting that role the role as son of David and true king. And yet it shows that he interpreted and presented a kingdom that was unlike that which most men and women thought it would ever be. On Friday, he went to his throne. And what a throne that was. A cross on which he died. And yet he ruled even when it seemed he was being crushed. There's so much more for you to know in this passage today than just the sentimental idea of palms waving and children crying out. Those are important elements. There's some very important themes to understand that should impact your spiritual life. The first point I want to make today as we look at this text, I'll state it in a way, that it might actually jar you, because this is the day that Jesus came out of the closet. No, of course, I don't mean that vulgar sense of current-day slang. But this triumphal entry means nothing less than the lifting off of Jesus of a wrap or a a veil of semi-secrecy that had surrounded his ministry up till now. Earlier, you know, and Mark is the gospel that has this, the strongest emphasis, there's this secrecy motif, people call it, as Jesus would heal somebody and he would say, now, now don't tell anyone, or or go to your home, rejoice in God, but don't tell them who healed you. And there's a little bit of puzzlement about that. Why would he not want it to be told? And of course, it was an instruction that was almost always disobeyed. People went out immediately and told But he was always asking them, don't do this yet. And you have a sense that there's a time, a right time for this, and it's not yet. And that he will control the time and say when the hour has come. Well, the hour has come. This is now the hour for Jesus Christ to be revealed openly and forthrightly on the stage of the world. He would be... He would be brought here to this city, the great central city of that whole part of the world, thronged full of people come for the Passover in a time when nothing could really be done secretly. And he would be viewed and examined by many witnesses, both believers who praised him and unbelievers who spit at him, and into what really amounted to a heap of highly combustible religious ideas and practices, Jesus would deliberately, deliberately drop a lighted match. You see, the setting was Jerusalem at Passover week, and you and I, for all I've ever read about it and understood, I don't think we can have a real understanding of what that was like. Jerusalem in its regular population was a city smaller than Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But at Passover time, This high festival of the temple and the practice of the Jewish people. The estimates tell us that thronged around it and camped out on the hillsides all around the city often were as many as one million people. We just read in our newspapers not long ago that Lancaster County is approaching a half million what if the entire half million came into the city at one time? How would you like that traffic jam? A Half million. And there were a million. Now, they didn't have automobiles, but there were a million of them coming from everywhere to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. You can't hardly picture this. Every road thronged with people, every patch of land having tents and shelters where people would camp out. There weren't possibly enough places in the city to house them. Arrangements made with relatives or innkeepers, but those were choice. You, most people would have been out in the open or under a tent. To reinforce a little bit of what it was like, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about a Passover 20 years after this, in approximately 50 A.D., 20 years after the death of Jesus. And he documented his estimate that 250,000 Passover lambs were brought in from the countryside in great herds and were sacrificed. 250,000 lambs. Does it give you some concept of what a thronged, packed, crowded place Jerusalem was when this event was going on? Now, Jesus had walked with his disciples to get there, of course. He, as far as we know, generally walked. We don't read of him riding any other occasions. And here he is, two miles from the city gate. If you've ever visited there, you can probably picture where he was on the Mount of Olives. It's the place where all the tour buses stop. There's a, there's a pull over there, and every tour bus... Stops there, the people get out because you can stand in a group and you will have the temple mount with the shining gold dome of the Islamic Dome of the Rock behind you and the spread of the old city. That's right where he was. And from there he would go down a valley across the Kidron Valley and up again and into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, the last two miles approximately. Was he somehow unable to walk? He had walked many miles to get there. And this part was basically downhill. Why did he need to ride? Was he worn out? We don't think that was the reason for this at all, of course. Jesus acted here deliberately making himself into a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which you could find in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. A text there in which God spoke through his prophet and said this, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Zion is the name, another name for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And God there through the prophet went on to say this, and I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses and he will proclaim peace to all nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea. A man of peace coming on a donkey who would defeat the chariots of war brought against Jerusalem. Now, there are liberal commentators who speculate that what was going on here was that uh, Jesus came along and he kind of got swept up in the, in the holiday spirit and all the throngs of people that were there. And, and these people, these interpreters will say that this demonstration we call the triumphal entry really wasn't Jesus' idea, but it just was something that sort of ballooned out of control, like a, a demonstration that he couldn't handle or he couldn't manage. Well, that's absolutely wrong, absolutely wrong. Jesus is the producer, the director, the screenwriter, and the lead actor in this drama. He planned it exactly as it happened, and he planned it to occur in prime time for maximum public exposure. And you read here how the he sent two disciples, not named, to go and get these these animals, a mother donkey and her foal. He rode on the foal. And there are those who say, well, this is an exhibition of his divine omniscience. He knew that there would be a, a donkey standing there, and the disciples should go to this particular place and find it. And he was God and had omniscience, and he certainly did. That could be the explanation. It could also be explained by him having prearranged that, perhaps, with the owner. We really don't know which is which. Some people insist on one and others insist on the other, and I would side with those who say it doesn't really make a difference. The point is, Jesus was deliberately taking this animal, a unique animal, a foal of a donkey never before ridden upon, placing himself on it, positioning himself in front of a Jewish crowd who knew their Old Testament so that they would proclaim him as the king that Zechariah had prophesied. Well, you know, it seems incongruous to us that it would be a donkey, doesn't it? You think, why not a prancing horse? Why not a great stallion of some kind that would lift him up in dignity above the crowd? Well, it wouldn't have been according to prophecy. That's why. And Zechariah told about this animal being particularly appropriate because it represented the weakness of the one who rode it, not vaunted strength, not commander of an army, not a general with braid all over his shoulders and medals on his chest, a weak man of peace who nevertheless was remarkably stronger than any general who commanded chariots or laser-guided missiles." Now, Jesus did arrange to have the donkey. That part was, if you want to call it manipulated or set up, it was, no, no doubt about it. But there was also a part about this that he did not manipulate, at least humanly, how would he manipulate the applause and the shouts and the cries of thousands and thousands of people who parted like waves to let him through as they saw him coming. And humanly, they acted as free moral agents. And remember, probably or probably, quite possibly some of them, it's often pointed out, were the same folk who were hanging around on Friday morning whose cries were something quite different as they caught the tempo of the leader's accusations and said, Crucify! But now their word is, God save the king! That is, if they spoke English, that's what it amounted to. God saved the king. What they actually said was, Hosanna, son of David. Now, we've used that word, Hosanna, already in the service. I was noting how many times it was repeated in the hymns and the the choral call and other things that you've heard. And isn't that kind of a Palm Sunday word? Hosanna. You say it every year. I don't think you go around in everyday speech in America and say, good morning, Hosanna. You know, It's not a word we use. I wonder if you know what it means. We let these things fall off our lips and we don't even know what we're saying. You say, well, it's a word of praise to God. It must mean kind of like hallelujah, doesn't it? No. As a matter of fact, it doesn't. Hosanna is a unique word. It's actually a prayer, a very short prayer. It means, God, save us. You could say that Hosanna is what a Jewish person says when they fall out of the boat in the ocean. Hosanna, save me, God. And this is what they were saying to Jesus. God, save us. Son of David, save us. You see how important that phrase is? There's nothing accidental here. They're not just praising a good man or a teacher They are calling him the descendant of David, and they are crying upon him to bring to them the salvation of God. And then here in Matthew, they add a phrase, which we believe is taken from Psalm 118, and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If Hosanna, son of David, wasn't enough, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, says, look, the people see this. Man as coming from God on an errand of salvation. And so we read, they put their cloaks down in the road. That's an old testament gesture, not seen a lot, but there are a few places in the time of the kings. The book of Second Kings has a mention or two of it. When a king would come on a parade, and the people would literally lay down their cloaks. And you can you can understand the image. It's pretty much self-explanatory there. They're laying themselves down and saying, oh, king, we are are your vassals. We are your servants. We bow and put ourselves at your service as you ride over us, in a sense. Palm branches, too. We always have them to remind you of the symbolism. Palm branches are an ancient symbol of victory and of royalty. When a king came on a victory parade, palm branches were waved around him. Well, the overarching message is quite simple. Jesus came out of the closet. Jesus deliberately stepped out of three years of self-imposed ministry secrecy to accept the earthly role of God's appointed king, the descendant of David, who the Scripture had said would always sit on God's throne. And for this one last week at least, he would publicly occupy that. He hadn't claimed the office before, but now he showed that it belonged to him. And he would occupy that office and carry out probably the strangest royal business that any monarch in this world ever undertook to do. Well, in the second place, then let's look at a few reasons behind this grand entrance. I'm going to give you three of them. Some reasons. What? Why? Why this right now? Well, one was that Jesus was actually provoking his enemies into making their fateful move against him. He was precipitating the conflict that ended in his death at the cross. We know there was already animosity as far back as we are from here in Matthew, as we've been studying it together, we're, we're just working in uh, chapter 10, just finished chapter 10, we've already seen animosity, and it kind of builds and builds. There's 10 chapters between there and here, so it's built quite a bit, and very open hostility between the temple leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, for they all had their different policies and different philosophies, but he was their common enemy. If you looked at John chapter 11, the triumphal entry is told about in John 12. John 11, the chapter before it, has the, the leaders plotting in secret, saying, well, well, let's try to arrest him. It's the time for the feast. We'll watch for him. We can't act in, in the open because of the people would rise up against us, but we'll try to get him. 11.57 of John says that. They looked... For him, and they had issued orders, if his arrest could be accomplished secretly, then do it. And actually, right after he wrote in in John 12:29 there's a, an exclamation of dismay on the part of the leaders as they, they see him going by and realize they can't touch him in that public arena, and they say, "Look, the whole world has gone after this fellow." sort of an exclamation of defeat. Well, I remind you of something else from John. John 10:18. Before that, Jesus said, "No one is going to take my life from me. I am going to lay it down of my own accord." In other words, when it's time for me to be arrested, I'll choose the time, I'll choose the place, and I will be in control. And that's part of what he was doing here. He caught his enemies completely off guard. They were not going to grab him going down that road. You can imagine. They would have been probably grabbed and trampled to death if they tried to take this one who was being acclaimed as the king after David. And so Jesus trumped them in a sense. They they thought they'd find him slinking around in an alley, coming in a back way somewhere. What did he do? He rode in the front door with thousands of people singing his praises. He provoked his enemies into their fateful move against him. A second reason for the triumphal entry was to show that this humble king coming in peace was actually greater than any tyrant preparing to do war. You know, stop and think about what people generally do when they crave power. This is a good time to think about it in a presidential election season beginning to warm up, what do the presidential hopefuls do when they want to be the one singled out to become a candidate to be elected? Well, they've got very carefully orchestrated press strategies. They have uh, press managers who, who, you know, release statements about them at strategic times. And what are those statements? Why, they are always things that will build them up and make them look good and make them look wise and powerful and discerning and leader-like, they certainly don't issue press statements that amount to confessions of of weakness or liability, Not, not in your life. And yet, here is Jesus coming and actually advertising in public in this great throng of people his complete lack of brute strength deliberately posing as a man of weakness, no weapon in his hand, no weapons in his disciples' hands, riding on a weak little animal, a beast of burden. And he's coming aligned against the great political and religious machinery of that age that sought to destroy him. Who is really the greater, his enemies or him? There's an interesting precedent to think about back in the Old Testament. His ancestor David, when he was king, (coughs) you remember some of the trials of David? One of them was in 2 Samuel 16 when David's son Absalom, remember the proud, handsome Prince Absalom, rose up against his father and said, I'll be king. And he connived and worked it out and had some people on his side and staged a little coup and His strength was great enough, David was an older man by then, that he had to flee from Absalom, who came to Jerusalem. And if David had simply sat still, he would have been overcome, and Absalom would have captured him. Who knows? Maybe he would have even murdered his father. He certainly would have imprisoned him or taken him out of power. Well, David goes out of the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is going out, not coming in. But 2 Samuel 16 tells you of a man who approached him, with a string of donkeys and said, here, O king, here are animals to bear you and your family as you go out from the city. And we presume that David rode a donkey. In weakness, a king retreating, running from his own son, leaving his own capital, looking like the greatest shame and defeat that could possibly exist. And here was Absalom strutting and proud and handsome and Trotting around on his horses and coming in to take Jerusalem, which he did for a short time. But Absalom's pride soon became his sure downfall. And David didn't even have to fight against Absalom. The Lord ended his life in a degraded way. You see, lowliness is the way of God's king. God's king stoops down to make peace within his people and to calm the storms of our rebellion against the Lord. God's king doesn't need a brass band. He doesn't need a press manager. He doesn't need a built up reputation to inflate him into something that he's not. The greatest of all people are the most humble ones who don't need to advertise or strut or boast who simply act in the power of God. A third reason for the triumphal entry, I think, was this one. Jesus wrote a beast of burden. That's what a donkey is. You don't, you know, a donkey's a work animal. Jesus wrote a beast of burden to come and be the premier burden bearer himself. He wrote an animal used to doing work because he came to do a great and unique work and to carry away in his own person the burden of the penalty of human sin. Philippians 2 has that great passage about him, saying he came from the highest place of all. He made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant. Elsewhere we hear he was despised and rejected of men, smitten by God and afflicted, He was a servant doing a horrible piece of work, a piece of work that was too much even for a donkey to do. But the Son of God did it in lowliness and submission and offered Himself. And it was not in spite of His lowliness that He now rules from heaven's throne, but because of it. That lowliness is what put him on the permanent throne forever. So those are some of the reasons behind this grand entrance. Well, then, quickly as we close today, I say in the third place, what lessons might we learn from Christ's grand entrance into Jerusalem? There are probably quite a lot. I'm just going to mention two. One is this. We learn how to answer a great and epic question. One of the most important questions ever asked is right here in this text. Who is this? Who is this? People were saying, you know, there surely were those uninformed who had come from all kinds of places and they hadn't heard of Jesus. Who in the world is this? And the answer to the question is given, and it sounds kind of anticlimactic. It doesn't really sound like the answer you look for when some said, this is Jesus, the prophet, From Nazareth, you would have wanted the answerer to say, this is our king. But yet, you know, in calling him the prophet, many interpreters see there something just as important as calling him the king. Because I remind you of a text in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, a very important Old Testament prophecy where Moses is the one prophesying. And Moses tells his people, late in his life, in Deuteronomy 18.15, one day the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You see, there are a lot of different lines of prophetic fulfillment that lead towards Jesus. There was the Son of David, throne and, and crown. And there was this one from Moses, the great prophet, a greater prophet than Moses even. So right here in this passage, we're told, who is this? The son of David. And also the great prophet whom Moses predicted would come. And the question comes to us, are we able to confess him to be these things? God's greatest ever king, God's greatest ever spokesman. You know how Hebrews begins. The first few verses of Hebrews 1 say, in many times and diverse ways God spoke in the past through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken through His Son, the greatest prophet. Is that what you confess Him to be? Is that what He is to you? Is it possible he's just some kind of a curiosity, a a man who acted out these things you've always heard about, and you say, well, he he certainly did have an amazing life, but I I just can't see that it really led to everything you folks say. He was the great prophet. He was the great king. C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity has that famous passage about him where Lewis wrote, either this man was and is the Son of God Or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or call him a demon. Or you can kneel and fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But those are the only options. Those are the only options. Not just a great man. Not just a curiosity. Not just a religious leader. God's king on David's throne. God's great prophet, the successor of Moses. Is that what you have bowed and called him in your own life and faith? And then this finally, this lesson, it is not spoken directly here, but I believe we can say it is implied in this grand entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. (coughs) Excuse me. We think about another grand entrance. The grand entrance that is yet to come. Because you see, everything about Jesus is built not just on ideas, but on events. That's the unique thing about Christianity. Many religions are built on ideas. Hinduism is a great religion of ideas. Buddhism, abstract ideas all the way. No events there at all. Christianity, events. The birth of the Son of God in Bethlehem. The coming of the Son of God into Jerusalem. The healing miracles. The teaching. The cross. The resurrection. The ascension. It's all events. And we think maybe we've digested all those events. But folks, the greatest event hasn't come yet. There's a grand event coming. By which beside which this entrance into Jerusalem is just a a very tame little thing of one hour. That's about how long it took, I suppose, to ride a donkey through a crowd. I'm sure it didn't take an hour unless the donkey just couldn't move very well. An hour and it was over. But the Bible prophesies a great event when Jesus Christ will come again, enter the world again, Every eye will behold Him. Somehow, in the stunning power of God, every place on this planet, every eye will see Him at one time. And guess what? It's the very next time that He'll be mounted on a beast carrying Him. Revelation 19 tells of it. And it's quite a different scene. Revelation 19, 11, Jesus is mounted and John saw the wonder of it in a vision God gave him. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And the armies of heaven followed him, and he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty." and his name is written upon him, King of kings, Lord of lords, the same one who came into Jerusalem on a donkey. will make that great and final entrance as judge of the universe. Oh, you say, what a terrible day that's going to be. Well, that all depends. It all depends on whether at that day you'll be at his right hand, as he puts it, where his believing people are, or at his left hand, where for a very temporary time the unbeliever will be and then be rejected from him forever. You need to ask the question, is this Lord who once rode a donkey and then will ride a ruler's stallion my burden bearer? My judge through whom justification for my sin has already come upon me by faith in him and the shedding of his blood on my behalf. Have I already trusted in that, that he is my Passover lamb? If you say yes, you're ready for this holy week. You're ready for the solemn examination of these great truths again. You're ready for that future day when you will be at His right hand safe and He will reign forever with you at His side because the coronation event of Jesus that began here in Jerusalem will be completed when, as the Scripture says, every knee bows and every tongue, the unbeliever's tongue as well as the believer's, confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, King, exalted Judge, to the glory of God the Father. I urge you to bow before the great King in all His humble glory so that you can do it with full joy and everlasting pleasure at that final day when He comes again. Let us pray. Father, All the things you did in Jesus are important. They're all symbolic and significant. In this one ride of a man on a humble donkey down a road, we understand lines of prophecy, 400, 500, 600 years old, coming together around his head. And in that event, we also see prophetic foreshadowing of a day that hasn't come yet, when his entrance to this world will be tremendous and splendid and stunning beyond anything we can imagine. We thank you for the grandeur of your Son, for power made evident in weakness, for a man of peace who could not be defeated by any warrior. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Apply our hearts to trust him and hope in him and praise him. In Jesus' name, amen.